I was in the parking lot of the Oviedo Mall when I received the email I had been waiting for. I'm already in a great mood, so when I got the email, I was very eager. It's from a former guest of this show, a friend now, Lily Anderson Messick, the director of North Florida Programs for the Florida Native Plant Society. Just a few months ago, she was on the podcast to discuss her work, the cataloging of a unique species of tree, the Florida terea, Latin name terea taxifolia. When she was on the show a few months ago, at the end of our chat, Lily offered me an opportunity. She has volunteers all the time that come up and do surveys with her, exploring private land in search of individual specimens of this functionally extinct tree. I took her up on the opportunity, how could I not? And at the end of January, I drove up to Keystone Heights, stayed with a friend overnight, then drove all the way up to North Florida, waking before sunrise to meet Lily, just west of Tallahassee, off of Interstate 10, technically within the infamous city of Chattahoochee. I didn't know it at the time, but I was at the beginning of a totally rewarding, totally unusual, and totally fascinating hike with my new friend, Lily Anderson Messick, and I am eager to tell you everything we saw. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the search for the Terea, the story of the Florida Terea, those who are protecting it, and what the future holds. Before we go into the woods, let's recap a bit about the Terea. I called Lily up just a few weeks ago to go over the details of our hike and discuss what we saw out there, out in the ravines that scar the forests of North Florida. How are you? How are you? It's 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 nice to chat with you again. It's it's what, what is it? 2 3 weeks ago since we did our survey? Yeah, I guess, I guess so. I'm terrible at time, but that seems about right. Probably 3 weeks ago. How many uh Oh yeah, that's it was like right at the end of January, I think. So that that makes sense. Uh how how consistently have you been doing Terea survey survey since then? Every week I've been doing about probably I think 2 a week since I last just saw you, 2 or 3. Wow. How many yeah. uh, how many Tereas have you been seeing cuz I believe on our day we saw 13, I believe. And how many do you how many have you been seeing yeah. since then? So I found 22 that week I was with you. And then I found I found about 20 a week in the last 3 weeks. So doing it's great. That one parcel that we were on, I'm still finishing up that parcel because it's you know, just has been chock full of terrain. <laughs> I was gonna say that is that uh, is that not common for that many of the of the species to be seen in that. It is. In that... It's, I've I've seen it once before, but it is very uncommon. Yes, it is. So you really lucked out being able to join for that survey. I did. I mean, it's so funny. I've been telling people, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up every once in a while. I'll, I'll, I'll be like, oh yeah, I went on this hike and let me tell you about it. Cause it was kind of, <laughs> I was hiking through, you know, that's the thing that's hard to explain to people is when I'm like, yeah, I went hiking up with, with a botanist for the show and we we're looking for this type of tree that, that, that's, ex that's functionally. Made me fill my pockets with invasive berries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> your pocket literally was like weighed down. It was, it was massively filled with with those berries. Lily spent a large portion of the last part of our hike plucking invasive berries. I'll, I'll tell you about that in another episode later this month. It's it's a fascinating little detail, but we'll talk about that later. Good lord, there were so many of those. Anyway, um, but like I just explaining it to people and being like, when I say hike, maybe hike isn't the right word because hike implies that we're hiking like a a yeah. charted trail and are walking for you know beginning to end, and we know the the route that we're taking. We were climbing up the sides of ravines 
Bushwhackings. We were, we, I was, we were ducking. Bushwhacking under... is more of like yeah. more fitting for a lot of the terrain. Yeah, bushwhacking is probably right. I mean, it's it's so <laughs> funny. It's so funny to describe it to my friends who know me as basically a suburban hiker. To be like, yeah, that's I just did that. <laughs> that's so yeah. funny. It's like. Hiking, but off-road hiking. <laughs> That's right. Off-road hiking is probably yeah. more accurate. No trails, no nothing. So we were really out there roaming the backwoods looking for this tree in its historic range. The only place, perhaps, where this species has ever existed. Okay, so we're about to go on this trip with Lily where we're going to go hiking in the woods looking for the Torreya. But before we do, I want to do a brief recap of, of sort of the big points that you need to remember about this species of tree, the Florida Torreya, Torreya taxifolia, that, that's its Latin name. So if you really want to go in depth on this tree and its life and, and all of its issues, you need to go listen to the episode from last autumn that I did with Lily about the Florida Torreya. So you can learn a lot about this this situation that it's in. But but for now, we're just going to do a quick recap right now so you can get the details. And then to learn more in depth, go listen to that episode. It, it is amazing. But we're going to hit the big details right now. What you need to know about the Florida Torreya is that it, it kind of has only ever really existed in this one part of Florida, in North Florida. Millennia ago, we, we believe that this was connected to other Torreya species, and then over millennia, they separated and became this specific species, the Torreya taxifolia, the Florida Torreya. But they were living in this range basically with no problem for millennia, and then uh, sometime in the early 20th century, due to the horticultural industry, a... a Fungus came over from Asia, a fusarium. We knew that these trees were dying for most of the 20th century. They would basically grow to the point where they could reproduce and create more little baby Toreas, but then they would die. And then when they would grow back, they would not get to the age to produce new trees. They would not reach sexual maturity. And that was because of these fusarium, the, the fusarium and the way that it was impacting this tree. Now, for most of the 20th century, though, we didn't know that it was fusarium. We had no idea that it was this specific fungus that was causing this problem. It was only really recently in the last couple of years that we were able to determine that it was this fungus that was creating these cankers and affecting these trees really negatively and making them be unable to reach sexual maturity and create new trees, which is what makes them functionally extinct. When we say functionally extinct, that means that there are no new trees. The The trees don't reach the age where they can create new trees. So the trees are dying. There's less of them. They're unable to produce new species, new specimens. The way to detect the fusarium is really hard unless the tree has been under stress. Now, what that could mean is maybe an animal bumped on that tree. Uh, they, they, they have these things called deer rubbings where deers kind of rub their bodies along trees and, and that stresses the tree. Or you could have a lot of uh, dangerous weather like floods or storms or, or hurricanes. Or you could have what happened in North Florida when Hurricane Michael, a Category 5 hurricane hit Florida, specifically this region in 2018, and, and a bunch of trees fell, and many of them fell on Torreya. I witnessed this with my own eyes. I saw downed trees that fell almost four years ago on top of Torreya specimen, and that allowed the fusarium to grow. Because the tree is under stress, think of it like an immune system. Because the tree is under stress, the immune system is weaker, so the fusarium is able to destroy this tree because the tree's immune system is is just not doing its job properly. 
Which brings us to Lily's work. She does surveys looking for Terea on private land constantly. I joined her on this task, but why does she do it? Why does she have to look for these trees in the first place? You are doing this all the time. Can can you tell me what the goal is? Why you are tracking them, taking cuttings, uh, tracking their location, and things like that? Like, what is the what is the end goal of doing that that project? Well, so there is a lot of hope for treatment of the fusarium because, you know, like I mentioned, fusariums are well researched in the agricultural industry, and they're easily treated by a lot of different fungicides, but. Because this is a very different species, they need to figure out each fusarium has a different method, basically, of functioning and uses different chemicals, etc. And so, might need a different, a specific type of fungicide in order to most effectively treat it. But there's a lot of hope for actually treatment of this fusarium. And so, the goal is conservation of the species. It's listed as federally endangered, and when that happens, there is a recovery plan that the government will write when a species is listed as endangered. And part of the recovery plan is thorough surveys of all all populations of the plant, and then there's funding through cuttings we collected and the DNA we collected. There will be genetic work done on them to see the genetic variation between populations and possibly some trees are seems to be a little bit more resistant and you know there might be a we might have success with a breeding program that would breed resistance into the trees but the main goal is preservation of the genetic diversity of the species If you want to keep a species alive, you need genetic diversity, a preservation of not just the one type of tree, but all the different variations present in the genetic code of this tree. That's what Lily does with all these trees. She collects DNA on them, marks their location, and tracks their growth. It's it's all necessary to ensuring that we know exactly what is going on with this species and how we can keep it from going off the map forever. And you have to prevent people from replanting the terea. It's a problem that Lily says is very, very serious. Some people replant these trees because they think it will help the tree survive, but Lily reiterates how serious of a problem this is because then the fusarium can jump from the terea to other species. That is very bad. You don't want other species of trees to be so defunct that you have to go searching through thick woods to find what remains of this tree, which is what Lily does all the time. That's the kind of thing that, frankly, I needed to see in person. So I arrived to Chattahoochee early that Wednesday, waiting for Lily to arrive. Chattahoochee, if you aren't aware, is infamous because it's home to the Florida State Hospital, right on the Florida-Georgia border. It was once called the Florida State Hospital for the Insane, and in its earlier years, they practiced deeply inhumane and illegal practices on their patients. Its practices have since changed, a haunting and fascinating tale in its own right, one for another day. Nevertheless, knowing Chattahoochee by that reputation, I was anxious to arrive to this location. It didn't help that the bathroom at the gas station we parked at had graffiti on the walls that someone had attempted to cover up. I could still read the faint ghost of the words once written on the cinder block. It read, Young Hitchhikers Dismembered Here. 
I believe horror writers would call that a grim portent. <laughs> it was very threatening. But luckily, when Lily arrived, I was delighted to find my companion was enthusiastic and well-prepared for the adventure ahead. We piled on our warm-weather clothes, including beanies, scarves, gloves, hiking boots, and we jumped into Lily's four-wheel-drive vehicle. We headed straight for the private property we'd be exploring. Once through the gate and onto the property, Lily took the vehicle up these muddy hills, both of us marveling at the elevation around us. North Florida does not get enough credit for the beauty of the hills that layer its topography. Hills so tall that you can't even see past them, rolling and stretching into valleys beyond. The problem that Lily points out, however, is that this was once a full forest, one with towering pine trees that stretched far into the distance, but Foresting took that away from us, and what was once a gorgeous, full woodland with thick, tall trees is now a hillside. A gorgeous hillside, but not quite what it should be. It's missing something it once had. Lily masterfully drove her four-wheel drive vehicle over sliding mud that literally just whipped up orange bits around us. It was a total mess, but Lily handled it like a pro over these precarious angles. I'll admit that I was a little stressed, but Lily was very casual. <laughs> she never seemed nervous. Her confidence just made me confident. Lily and I parked on top of one of those hills and got our gear together. We made sure our boots were tight, our cold weather clothes were tucked in and snug, and our tools were at the ready. Lily was running a GPS on her phone, and we both had pruners in our pocket for snipping vines and branches in our path. Later, Lily would break out a handsaw to carve branches that had blocked the path, or even branches that had crashed down on top of the precious Terea specimen that we were looking for. That's the one element about this trip that most interested me. Save for possibly some hunters or other biologists, we may be the first human beings to have stepped foot along parts of this forest in many years, at least since Hurricane Michael swept through in October of 2018. Yeah, especially since Hurricane Michael, a lot of these areas, I mean, they, to to the average person, they look impenetrable, you yeah. know? I mean, I only know that they're penetrable because with enough forests and pruners and, you know, <laughs> um, with enough willingness to go through briars. They're definitely, you can get through them, but they're not fun to get through. No. Uh, they, they once were really easy to access because they had, you know, large canopies that prevented, you know, the secondary growth and soil disturbance that, that allows for a species like the grapevines and the blackberries to pop up. So before Hurricane Michael, it was very open and walkable in these ravines. They were very open. Um, but yeah, since Hurricane Michael, they they just are really in bad shape. I mean, what we saw was nothing compared to some of the mess that I've seen, where it's literally just matchsticks of felled trees, mm. you know, with vines growing over them and blackberries. And Being the first in here in so many years felt surreal. We humans are always in places where people always are. To go somewhere that has not known human interaction in that long is a totally unfamiliar sensation, but that is where Lily and I were headed. We walked down the hillside along the road, our car disappearing behind us until we took a sharp turn. Lily knew where we were headed and it was straight down into this ravine. The elevation plummeted as we pushed through the trees and leaves down the side of this hill. I could quickly hear the sound of water running, almost like someone was running a hose into a pool. It was that clear of a sound. 
When we arrived down, the side of the hill was almost cleaved off. Land gave way and water was rushing from beneath the surface of the earth, forming a stream along the forest floor. This topographic feature is exactly what Lily was looking for because this is the kind of place where you can find the Terea. They're called steep head ravines. It's one word. And it's a unique geological feature that only occurs where there is um, karst um, geology happening underground. There is limestone un underlying all of Florida, and and there are other underground river systems. The um, steephead ravines are formed in areas where there are ancient coastlines. So these big bluffs and these deep ravines that we um, saw out there, you know, we, we're, when we're up on the bluffs, if you look down the soil, tends to be sandy and those are ancient sand dunes and those dunes have a deep layer of sand usually about 30 feet deep that create that sand is actually what creates the unique shape and formation of the steep head ravine so rather than the water washing like a sheet from the top of the soil and pulling all of the stuff from the top of the soil down the water when it rains percolates through that deep layer of sand and there's also water flowing in that deep layer of sand regularly as well just part of the topography of Florida and because the water soaks through that deep layer then it hits a, a, like a hard pan of either clay or limestone and then it kind of it's in the sand but it's flowing through the sand got it across the limestone it's so lush in in that ravine and that's because of the water down there yeah so the water is constantly flowing and it is cool you so it's it actually creates these microclimates that are cooler these because the ravines are so steep and then they have this canopy that shades them with the big beech trees and the big magnolia trees and pines etc then the cool water constantly running actually kind of creates this little slightly cooler microclimate and they're cooler year round than the temperatures higher up on the bluffs just 30 to 80 feet above them and so that uh, creates like and it's you know obviously pretty humid because it's kind of moist in there right that creates you know an environment for a lot of plants that don't typically occur in Florida to persist in Florida. And the other component for the uniqueness of the flora in these ravines is that the Apalachicola River, which is what all of these steep head ravines flow into the Apalachicola River, mm -hmm. so they're connected to it. The Apalachicola is the only river in Florida with, um, that, with headwaters in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains, mm -hmm. the Appalachians rather than on the coastal plain, which is where the rest of the Florida rivers originate from. I sat down next to the stream, we discovered the, the first one of the day, and pulled out my recorder. You can clearly hear the water pouring out of the land next to me. I am uh, sitting next to a natural flow of water from a steep head ravine a couple miles into private property only a couple feet from a terrea specimen but 
this water down here is creating kind of a really lush ecosystem. I mean, there's ferns everywhere, and the ravines are really high. The, the topography around here is steep. But to my right, downstream from this water flow that I'm with, it's just like lush ferns, lots of beautiful bright green foliage. It's just amazing down here. And broken up erosion from a lot of plants, fallen trees. Pretty steep and dense down here. Sure enough, Lily and I weren't off the path for more than a few minutes when we found precisely what we were looking for, a Florida Terea, Terea taxifolia itself. We hustled over to its location just next to the ravine, and Lily set about doing the process she would do for every Terea we found on our hike. Later on, I'd ask her to describe it on microphone, so here is Lily describing the process of what she does when she finds a Terea from later on in the day. Not the first one we found, but, but later on. This is what she did for every single Terea. Okay, so we're sitting at, I think, I think it is the fifth one that we've seen today. Uh, can you tell me the process of, of what you've done with each of them, like the individual elements of what you've done when we found them? Yeah, so first I take a GPS point with the lat and long, so we have the exact location, and then I take, uh, I give it a permanent tag. It gets a metal tag on one on its um, branch, and then one on a stake in the ground. And that those tags both have the same number. That would be its permanent number, which now identifies the tree and identifies it to its location. And so that. Um, that number also identifies it to its date, the data and any DNA samples or cuttings that we would take from the tree. It would have that. That's its name now. And um, then I take a bunch of data. So I take the lat long. I take the I rate its condition based on very varying factors. I take the percentage of slope that it's on because they typically occur on slope. And then I take the aspect of that slope, like what this this slope is facing north and so that's the aspect and then I take the percentage of canopy um, above the tree I count the number of shoots because it because they often die back to their root system they'll send up all these little baby shoots and so I have to I count how many shoots are coming up from the root check to see if there's any signs of the leaf spot that is one sign of the fusarium that is infecting them Oh, wow. So you can physically see if there is fusarium affecting, like, certain trees, if we've seen any at all. Yeah. You've seen, you've seen, uh, so leaf spot is one sign, and then these are the cankers that the fusarium causes. Oh, so we're looking at a tree right now that has these cankers from the fusarium. Yeah, yeah wow. they're all infected. And so you see that, like, moldy kind of looking black. Yeah. That is a canker that, so this tree, we just freed it. We just sawed off that yeah. tree that was pinning the main trunk down. So this tree has obviously been under stress, and it's just stressful being a tree oh in nature God, right. at this time. You so know? it's literally under stress from the things that we just cut off of it, which is why the fusarium was able to affect it as drastically. Yeah, but it's also stressed from, you know, like warming winters and droughts that we've been experiencing. Those kinds of things can stress it. Physical, mechanical stress, like a tree falling on it or a deer rubbing it, can cause can weaken its you know immune system. That uh, in a way that allows the fusarium to, you know, really spread. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, so those are, so the other thing I do is I count the number of cankers and then I measure the largest canker. I measure how tall the tree is. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then I take a DNA sample or a cutting. Or wow. I take a DNA sample for every tree. I don't take a cutting for every tree. So like you mentioned that you take a, like a rating of the quality, I think was the word you condition, said. Condition, yeah. Condition, sorry, condition of the tree. If this guy is as bent as he is, is this bad condition for him to be in? Um, this is pretty good condition, actually. Really? Wow. For, for Terea, because I don't, you haven't seen re some really bad ones, but some of them are like, you know, m losing most of their needles. And this one has shiny, healthy needles and new, healthy growth. Yeah. And so that's, I'm giving it a four out of five. Wow. For Terea. W and even know. with this like very very arced very very like permanently up. bent up yeah yeah so Talk. it's all relative <laughs> yeah <laughs> on a scale of terrea quality yeah, of life on a scale of terrea quality of life this is a four okay in situ so in situ means in its natural habitat as opposed to in a planted cultivated site right. which would be ex situ and that um you know you can you can maintain the health of a tree so much you have you have control over the variables when when a plant is cultivated right. so there they are all trees that are planted in yards or whatever gardens are always healthier than trees that are in situ because sure. they don't have to deal with the stresses of natural life yeah just like wild dogs are less healthy than <laughs> pets you know all right, I'm going to set that off to record. Right. Although I will note for future reference that this one was across the um, big fallen tree that we had to walk across like a bridge to get to this <laughs> other side, fulfilling all childlike childhood dreams of being a wilderness explorer. Mountaineer. Mountaineer, that's right. This day actually proved fortuitous for us, as she mentioned earlier. It was cold and a little rainy, but we kept our spirits up by chatting. We talked about our lives, our careers, our parents, why we love Florida, why we love the outdoors, how we got into our respective interests. At one point, Lily says that she feels more comfortable naming plants by their scientific names, there's those, those Latin names for all species, rather than their common names. I asked her about that later, and, and she gave a really good answer. Say that plants that I learned their common names, you know, early on, like the showier plants, like purple coneflower and things like that. I re I remember the common names first of a lot of those species that I, you know, I knew I learned when I was a novice. But the deeper you get into separating species, the more you realize how important the, the taxonomy is because common names are not standardized. Anybody can call anything anything, and they mm. do, and that becomes a total mess. And it, the the species names are just, you know, it's the actual language of botany. You know, it is how we know what is what. Mm. Um, it is how you know it's like a first name and a last name of a person. You know, like you know, I know your Nick Delessandro, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. I wouldn't call you Nick Johnson, you know, like, <laughs> and people have no problem remembering that <laughs> because they're, because you, you become familiar with a person and you know them and you remember their name. And that's exactly how it is with plants. You, once you become familiar with a plant and I'm seeing, even though it's an obscure looking carex that is, 
you know, hard to differentiate from other species of Carex. I, I'm familiar with this one because I see it very often. And so, it, you know, it's like a friend to me in a way. It's like, yeah. I, I know that one. Oh, that's Carex falsellii. <laughs> that one bit really stands out to me. She says they're like a friend to her in a way. That was evident throughout the hike. Me, I love the sights. We'd come across interesting vistas and I'd stop and marvel, but Lily had her eyes on the ground, on the trees, on the water. Not just looking for the terrea that we were searching for, but also enjoying and taking in the species of plants around her. We kept seeing variety of a plant called trillium, these little green plants that popped up all over, and Lily and I would stop and examine their color and pattern. There were mushrooms and moss that lingered on bark all over, and Lily would point them out to me and describe how they got there and how they grow. I have learned so much about the flowers and, and, and mushrooms and trees and plants. We even spent a while sitting next to the edge of a stream as she taught me about the difference between types of carex, the genus that some grasses are in. Uh, there's a mnemonic to be able to tell them apart and it goes like this sedges have edges rushes are round and grasses have joints when the cops aren't around <laughs> you know make it that what you will i've seen other versions of it grasses have knees that bend to the ground but you know i think that the one that lily taught me is memorable in its own way it's strange but i will admit this later on that mnemonic genuinely helped me identify a few species that she pointed out to me clearly it hasn't left me because uh, i know it by heart even over a month later i will admit to you though that i am not a perfect outdoors person and i was not a perfect partner to lily on this uh on this hike Lily is a professional off-road hiking, as she jokingly called it. That, that, that's what she does all the time. She is very, very good at it. She was moving with speed and confidence, and I was just trying to keep up. She would pull herself up and over trees, cutting branches out of her path, stepping into mud, swiping away thorns like it was nothing. This is her element. This is what she does. And she has an eye for this. She would spot the terrea sometimes and then ask me if I could spot the tree myself, and I always needed help. I never was able to do it on my own. She would have to give me a clue of some kind. The Terea are distinct. They, they really are, but my eyes couldn't separate green from green. Hers could. Not to mention that, but I would also get myself into precarious situations. I, I found myself more than once completely trapped in a bramble as berry thorns wrapped around me. I, I joked that I felt like I was a victim of poison ivy in a Batman comic. Like I literally was just surrounded by these thorny vines and was looking up at her going, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. It was, it was painful. It was painful and, and, and intense, but I always got out and kept on going. My arms and legs, though, by the end of the day were pinprick by hundreds of thorns they, they really hurt I also fell really hard at one point and and I don't mean to be crass but I landed on my butt and I had a bruise on my hip for days and when I fell I dropped my microphone while it was recording here's here's the audio of me falling really hard and basically throwing my microphone myself by a tree and found another uh, berry. Oh. Woo. At one point, Lily pointed out a purple flower uh, along the stream and we discussed it. Uh, a moment later, I asked her if, if another flower that I had spotted was the same as the one we had just seen. And, and here's what she said. It's, it's really funny. There's more purple flowers, but I don't know if they're the same kind. They might be. 
I mean, it definitely, definitely does. Yeah, that's a viola, so totally different family. I just, um, listen, okay. I'm a, I'm a rookie botanist. So I see five purple flowers and five purple petals and I'm like, same, same. It was hilarious then and it is hilarious now. I, I, I'm such a novice. And I told Lily how much of a novice botanist I am. I don't think it settled in until I couldn't tell those two obviously different purple flowers apart. Uh, you could show me a litany of wading birds and I can likely tell you the, each species apart from each other, but because I'm more of an ornithological bird guy than I am a botanist, but but being surrounded by the nature of North Florida, being taught by someone who, who, who just knows this stuff so well, I, I started feeling myself kind of blend in. I, I felt my eyes adjust and my brain start to go, well, that's that's a trillium on the ground and, and and that's this type of moss that we've been seeing and eventually you know the the terea stood out and i could start to feel myself getting comfortable in the woods we spent eight hours roaming the ravines with its lush nature stomping through mud pulling ourselves out of brambles searching for terea and occasionally successfully finding one at the end of the day we had found 13 terea at one point, we found one section of the wood that had three separate terea specimens within a few feet of each other, all in this one area, and there was a turtle in that little section. It was amazing. We found one and then another and then another just to, to have them all so close. It was, it was really, really cool. I would also be tying off these little pink ribbons everywhere that we went to, to indicate them at a distance and to be able to look back at certain points and see the pink ribbons and know where the terea had been behind us. It's, it was really exciting to see the impact we were having. Some of the terea were in better condition than others. Some were dark green and, and glorious, and one of them was uh, brittle and brown. Its leaves were dying. From one of the fresher tereas, Lily plucked a needle and handed it to me. She told me to break it up and smell it. It smelled like a fresh vegetable, like summertime, like green. It smelled like green. Lily said it reminded her of a tomato plant, and, and I agreed. These trees were vital and very much alive, coursing with life despite the fact that this fungus was killing them, despite the fact that they are labeled as functionally extinct, and despite the fact that they have no idea that they are some of the only few specimens of this tree left in existence. They are just growing and living. That is difficult to process. They survived this long, and it is in their nature to just keep surviving as best as they can. After a few hours of chatter and exploring and searching, we found 13 Terea, and I was very proud of that. I really was. I mean, if there's only a few of these left to have seen 13 of them, it's pretty exciting. And to know that it has such an important impact on them. Lily had a bag full of clippings and, and a bunch of new data and a bunch of stuff to continue her work, and, and I had some part of that. I'm proud of that. I was physically, mentally exhausted. My eyes were killing me. My feet were killing me. But Lily and I both agreed. There is something about being out in those woods that is satisfying and fulfilling. I would say that what I get out of it, what it's like for me, is that I, I, I find it so spiritually fulfilling to be outside in nature and to be, uh, just to be observant. I feel like people always ask me, like, how do I get into botany or how do I learn? The big thing is just, being observant, like 90% of it is just observation. So most people have 
what people in the plant world call plant blindness. And if you showed them a photograph of like, you know, some deer and squirrels in the woods and you ask the person like how many species do you see in this photo, they would name the animals, but they would completely overlook the plants because most people don't even notice plants. It's like background or scenery to them. But these are living, moving things that are changing and moving all around us. But because their time scale is so separate from ours, they're on this long, slow time scale, you know, they're still reaching for sunlight and accessing things that they need and, you know, and communicating with each other. But they're doing it on in a different time field than us and so to us it's like they're not even moving mm-hmm. but when you observe them you begin to see their movements you begin to see their maturation you begin to notice all of these things and I, it's so fulfilling for me um, it makes me feel uh, what's the word I guess it, it makes you feel like I guess I would say it's uncomforted by knowing that I'm just, I'm not the center of the universe and that I'm just a piece in this big community that is happening and existing all around me. Yeah. I mean, I was so myself kind of mind boggled by the ecosystems we were seeing and the way that the plants were existing and growing and changing i mean we talked about the trillium a lot you post about them a lot on your instagram as well and getting to see them growing and how unique they were and the diff just all the different species that were mingling and 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 interacting and and like you said that time scale is something that 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 i'm definitely going to talk a lot about on the on the episode because you're you really have to kind if you aren't a botanist if you don't work in in plants you have to kind of just like open your brain <laughs> to think about what that is because it's so yeah. it's so uh, uh kind of kind of i don't even know the right word like it, your 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 tiny human brain can't process the times the yeah. timeline of a plant sometimes and if you walked outside you know you might look out into your yard and think oh there's nothing out there uh, but if you walked outside and you just look down into what you think of as your lawn just in a square foot, you would probably in Florida see many species of, mm. of of plants and and many species of organisms, invertebrate organisms. If you started looking in the soil, and then if you used a microscope, you would see way more. So there's just their life is teeming in every square foot all around us, you know, and especially in Florida, our biodiversity is just out of this world. So there's just, I mean, just think about the mass of, of invertebrates that are living in the soil beneath us right now. You know, there are, there are so many species down there and there's mycelium and fungus and all kinds of different cool things. It's just, I, I think we get so caught up in our own head which is not a healthy place to be. <laughs> and we forget that we're like a part of this big, beautiful world that's teeming with life. And that if we just look, you know, you can see it. And it really, it provides so much relief for me from the stress of living in our current 
life's, you know, human existence. We left the woods, eventually. Sundown was approaching. The cold weather had gone and, and then returned. The heavy winter clothes were packed up, but then dawned again as the temperature dropped with the sun. Somehow, after hours of what felt like wandering along the ravines, Lily brought us out on the road and out back to the car. I, I don't know how she did it, honestly. It, it felt like we were deep in the middle of the woods, and then a few turns and we were back where we started. It was uh, incredible. We emerged, we returned to our vehicle, and as night approached, we parted ways. Her and her vehicle, and I and mine. And I left North Florida behind. For now. Since then, I've been an avid watcher of Lily's Instagram. I'll post a link so you can follow as well. You, you have to. You just have to. Lily shares her hikes, her finds, the plants she spots, the animals she spots, and the people she gets to do hikes and explorations with, both for the Terea and for other projects. I'm constantly fascinated by what she'll discover each and every time I see her story pop up, because it isn't all the Terea. As essential the Terea is to what she is doing, as fond as she is of that specific tree, there are so many plants that she is finding day after day and sharing it for everyone who follows her to see. And if I'm being honest with you, as hard as that day was, as tired as my feet were, as heavy as my eyes got, as many times as I was stabbed by a thorn or thwacked by a branch or, or fell hard on my back or my legs, or as many times as I stepped ankle deep into mud or, or felt like I was completely out of my depth, searching for a needle and a haystack, I cannot wait to go back. Honestly, every day while making this episode, I have been waiting to return to go back and, and take another step on Lily's quest to help her find our native Terea and to spend another day out in those woods, worrying about nothing but the ground beneath my feet and the little tree that needs our help. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. This season is just getting started. We're not even at the halfway point now, so this is a great season to get into the show. Lots of history and nature and culture and some amazing stories on the way. If you're looking for another episode to listen to immediately, this episode has, has kind of a part two to another episode. As I mentioned about the Florida Torreya, go listen to that episode. It's such an interesting story. And as you can tell, Lily Anderson Messick is the kind of person you just always want to talk to. So you'll be hearing from her again sometime soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, a five-star review really goes a long way. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I want to thank, again, Lily Anderson Messick. If you want to learn more about her work, follow her on Instagram. I've put a link in the description of this episode. Go check out her work. She's doing amazing stuff, and so is everybody at the Florida Native Plant Society. So go give them a follow. Go see what they're up to. They're doing very important work. All right, this episode was already long, so I wanted to keep the credits short. I will see you next Monday for a brand new episode. I'm very excited for you to hear it. Until then, be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more 
water. Have a good week. See you next Monday. Take care of yourself. <laughs>